Chapter 10 of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons by Robert Balgarney. Chapter 10 rear high thy towers and mansions fair thou gem of towns renowned salt air long may thy graceful spires arise in beauty pointing to the skies for labour dwells ennobled here our homes to bless our hearts to cheer from morn to eve the sun i ween shines not upon a fairer scene anonymous the opening of Saltaire was an event memorable not only in the personal history of its founder, but in that of the commercial trade of the district and the country generally. Never before had the enterprise of one man ventured on a scheme so magnificent. Other manufacturers had erected large works, but the plan of Saltaire was so bold in its conception so extensive in its design, so complete in its execution, that it placed the owner on a pinnacle of fame without a rival. But before entering the mill proper, we would first survey the scene which the inauguration banquet presents. As we have said, the 20th September, 1853, was the 50th anniversary of Mr. Salt's birthday. It was also the period when his eldest son, now Sir William Salt, baronet, came of age. There were, therefore, three events to be celebrated, either of which by itself might have evoked the sympathy of the community. But this triple combination was enough to call forth enthusiastic expressions of admiration and respect for the father and good wishes for the son. The banquet was held in the great combing-shed of the building, which was elaborately decorated for the occasion, and had sitting accommodations for three thousand five hundred guests. The weaving shed would have held a company twice as numerous, but the other was deemed preferable. In length the combing shed is two hundred ten feet, and in breadth one hundred twelve feet. The roof is supported by fifty light cast-iron columns, which, for the festival, were wreathed with laurels. On one side was placed a long table, occupied by Mr. Salt and the principal guests. The seven center tables traversed the hall, and at them 644 ladies and gentlemen were seated. Right and left of the center ones were 20 tables for the workpeople, who, to the number of 2,440, were brought from Bradford by special train. As an evidence of the large-hearted hospitality of Mr. Salt, the order given to the purveyors was for 3,000, 750 guests, and as a further proof of it, let us glance at the actual provision for such a company. The following is the bill of fare. Four hindquarters of beef, 40 chines of beef, 120 legs of mutton, 100 dishes of lamb, 40 hams, 40 tongues, 50 pigeon pies, 50 dishes of roast chickens, 20 dishes of roast ducks, thirty brace of grouse, thirty brace of partridges, fifty dishes of potted meat of various kinds, three hundred twenty plum puddings, 
one hundred dishes of tartlets, one hundred dishes of jellies, etc. Altogether there were two tons weight of meat and a half ton of potatoes. The dessert consisted of pines, grapes, melons, peaches, nectarines, apricots, filberts, walnuts, apples, pears, biscuits, sponge cakes, etc. There were seven thousand knives and forks, four thousand tumblers, four thousand two hundred wine glasses, and seven hundred fifty champagne glasses. Such was the provision Mr. Salt made for his guests, with almost oriental profusion, and we give the above detailed account as illustrating one of those deeds that reveal the man. His hospitality was in keeping with the generosity of his heart. Whatever he did, he must do it well. Meanness was foreign to his nature, and in affording pleasure to others, his soul delighted. But who were the special guests on this suspicious occasion? In the illustrated news of 1st October, 1853, sketches are given of the principal table, the model mill, and the evening concert in St. George's Hall. At the table, with Mr. and Mrs. Salt as the central figures, appear the Lord Lieutenant, Mrs. Smith, the mayoress of Bradford, and Mr. Frank, now Lady, Crosley, while in close proximity were members of Parliament, the Mayor and Corporation of Bradford, magistrates, mayors of various towns, and private friends of Mr. Salt. It would be inconsistent with the design of this volume to reproduce the various speeches delivered at the banquet, except such parts as throw light on the character and enterprise of him whose life we seek to portray. The Earl of Harewood said that he should go back with the high notion of the manufacturing classes. He wished the shades of the late Sir Robert Peel were there to see the happiness and prosperity that reigned amongst them. When he saw the enormous structure which Mr. Salt had erected, and the good architectural taste displayed in the building, he could not but say that the whole was greatly to Mr. Salt's credit. But he would specially draw attention to what he was doing for the good of the working classes by building them commodious, well-ventilated cottages, perfect in a sanitary point of view, so that his workpeople might be conveniently and comfortably lodged. This was an example of building good mills and providing well at the same time for those who worked in them. After a passing allusion to the fearful ravages of the cholera in other towns arising from bad drainage and overcrowding, he said no such source of disease would exist at Salt Air. The mayor of Bradford, Mr. Samuel Smith, said the man was still living and present in the room who carried the first gross of machine-spun yarn to the Bradford market. What progress since then! They had built palaces of industry almost equal to the palaces of the Caesars. Instead of manual labor, they had availed themselves of the wonderful resources of mechanical science. Instead of a master manufacturer carrying a week's production on his back, he harnessed the iron horse to the railway train and daily conveyed away his goods by the ton. Instead of being content with old English wool only, they now ransacked the globe for materials to work up. Mr. Salt's words were, as usual, few and appropriate, 
but surely little was needed from his lips in the presence of deeds which so eloquently spoke for him still in expressing his gratitude for the kind allusions made to himself he said he had still further pleasure in seeing that vast assemblage of his own workpeople around him ten or twelve years ago he had looked forward to this day on which he completed his fiftieth year when he thought to retire from business and to enjoy himself in agricultural pursuits but as the time drew near and looking to his large family five of them being sons he reversed his decision and determined to proceed a little longer and to remain at the head of the firm having thus determined he at once made up his mind to leave bradford he did not like to be a party to increasing that already overcrowded borough but he looked around him for a site suitable for a large manufacturing establishment and he pitched upon that whereon they were then assembled he would do all in his power to avoid evils so great as those resulting from polluted air and water and he hoped to draw around him a population that would enjoy the beauties of the neighborhood and who would be a well-fed contented and happy body of operatives he had given instructions to his architects that nothing should be spared to render the dwellings of the operatives a pattern to the country if his life should be spared by providence he hoped to see satisfaction happiness and comfort around him such words have the true ring in them no proud vaunting of what his own skill had accomplished no purposes of self-aggrandizement obtrude to indicate a sordid spirit no fair visions of unfolded wealth yet to be acquired by the erection of this colossal structure but underneath all we discern the praiseworthy motives that actuated him namely to benefit his family and his fellow men among the many tributes paid on this occasion to mr salt not the least interesting was one from mr french on the part of the operatives who said he looked with pride and satisfaction on the mass of working people assembled in a place which might perhaps one day become a city and he concluded by reading a poem composed by mr robert story the craven poet it is entitled the peerage of industry to the praise of the peerage high harps have been strung by minstrels of note and of fame but a peerage we have to this moment unsung and why should they not have their name chorus for this is his praise and who merit and not deserve no good luck should o'ertake them that while making his thousands he never forgot the thousands that helped him to make them tis the peerage of industry nobles who hold their patent from nature alone more genuine far than if purchased with gold or won by mean arts from a throne and of industry's nobles what name should be first if not his whose proud banquet we share for whom should our cheers simultaneously burst if not for the lord of salt air the peer who inherits an ancient estate and cheers many hearts with his pelf we honour and love but is that man less great who founds his own fortune himself who builds a town round him 
sends joy to each hearth makes the workman exult mid his toil and who while supplying the markets of earth enriches his own beloved soil such a man is a noble whose name should be first in our heart in our song in our prayer for such should our cheers simultaneously burst and such is the lord of salt air but this inauguration banquet did not close the festivities a concert was given by mr salt in the evening which took place in st george's hall bradford and to which the guests of the day were invited the hall was crowded in every part the stalls were occupied by the principal guests and the area and galleries by the workpeople the appearance of mr salt was hailed with several rounds of cheering the entrance of mr forbes as well as that of the mayor was also the signal for loud applause the solo vocalists consisting chiefly of native talent were accompanied by an efficient choir and an instrumental band and the occasion being one in which their hearts were in fullest sympathy called forth their warmest efforts the enthusiasm of the audience was unbounded and as the proceedings terminated by repeated cheers for the distinguished host he was overcome with emotion and could only acknowledge the compliment by a low bow as an evidence of the character of the workpeople not a single instance of intoxication or misconduct occurred throughout the day such were the great opening festivities of salt air let us now take a brief survey of the works on which so much thought and money had been expended and about which so many eulogisms had been uttered the great building itself is of light-coloured stone in the italian style of architecture and though a quarter of a century has elapsed since its erection it still retains all the freshness of a recent structure smoke has not soiled it nor has the hand of time left its mark upon it the south front of the mill is five hundred forty five feet in length exactly that of st paul's its height is seventy two feet above the level of the midland railway which passes within a few yards it has six stories and when seen from the southern approaches the whole front has a commanding appearance the railway passenger travelling along that route northwards must have been arrested by the glass-covered engines which are visible in their movements from the carriage window these engines are placed in the centre of the building and are themselves the central power by which the vast machinery is kept in motion the first four floors are divided by the intervening engine houses but the top room runs the whole length of the building the total area of the flooring is upwards of fifty-five thousand square yards the ground floor is sixteen feet high and the floor above fourteen feet each being fireproof the roof is of iron and the windows are formed of large squares of plate glass opening on pivots the warehouses three hundred thirty feet in length run northwards from the front building in the form of the letter t only lengthened in its perpendicular limb on either side of the warehouse the ground is occupied by extensive sheds that on the eastern side of the weaving shed covering two acres and holding one thousand two hundred looms that on the western side is used for combing machines etc it was in this building the inaugural banquet was held on the same side are also rooms for sorting washing and drying wools 
and for reeling and packing. Beneath is a tank capable of holding 500,000 gallons of rainwater collected from the roofs, and which, when filtered, is used in the processes of manufacture. On the top of the warehouse, a large iron tank is placed, containing 70,000 gallons, drawn by engine pumps from the river, and available in case of fire. The two chief entrances to the works are by the western side, one for the workpeople and heavy traffic, the other for members of the firm, clerks, and people on business. The offices face the main road, which crosses the canal and river by an immense iron bridge leading to the park and other places. In front are the beautiful church, dining hall, and the commodious town to which we shall afterwards refer. But if any part of the works demands special notice, it is the steam engines. These, as the work of Mr. Fairbairn, were considered a marvel of ingenuity and skill. Yet, such has been the progress since in mechanical science that the original engines have been superseded by four beam engines on the Corliss principle, an American invention, and indicating 1,800 horsepower. In the construction of the engine beds alone, 2,400 tons of solid stone were used. There are 14 boilers. The chimney is 250 feet high, that is about one-fourth higher than the monument, and is 26 feet square at the base. Green and Twibble's economizers are used, yet the consumption of coal is about 50 tons a day, or 15,000 tons a year. The weight of the shafting, which the engines have to set in motion, is between 600 and 700 tons. The calculations for the weaving shed were that it should hold 1,200 looms, producing each day 30,000 yards of alpaca cloth, or mixed goods, equal to nearly 18 miles of fabric. This would give a length of 5,688 miles in one year, which, in the graphic words of Mr. W. Fairbairn, would, as the crow flies, reach over land and sea to Peru, the native mountains of the alpaca. The gas works on the northeast side are of great magnitude. There are two gasometers which supply the works and the town with light. As the Midland Railway and the Leeds and Liverpool Canal almost touched the premises on opposite sides, the facilities for traffic could not well be surpassed. But, as we have said before, salt air has been a growth, and since the opening day many additions have been made to the works. At a later period, a new spinning mill and dye works were erected on the site of Dixon's Mill. One object Mr. Salt had in view in this new undertaking was to utilize the water power which was running to waste. A horizontal wheel, known as a turbine, was introduced at the time, but as the water supply was irregular, it was afterwards superseded by a horizontal engine, eight feet stroke, direct acting, making 45 revolutions, or 720 feet speed of piston per minute. The erection of a new chimney was objected to as distracting from the view on that side of the premises. Mr. Saul's reply was, I'll make it an ornament to the place. To this end he built it in the form of a lofty tower, with elaborate masonry at the top, and it has more the appearance of an Italian campanile than a mill chimney. 
in eighteen seventy one a shed was built on the east side of the original mill with a storage capacity for twelve thousand bales of wool the whole area covered by the works alone is about ten acres the buildings are supplied with warm air in winter and cool air in summer long lines of ventilators worked by levers are inserted and all effluvia are carried by pipes into the chimney flue thus the sanitary condition of the workpeople has in every way been considered but mr salt's great conception did not end with the erection of the mill it also embraced what was still more dear to him the provision of comfortable dwellings church schools in fact every institution which could improve the moral mental and religious condition of the workpeople the number of hands employed at the works was at that time between three thousand and four thousand who had for the most part to be housed at salt air with a lithographed plan of the town before us let us notice a few points about it which serve to illustrate some features of mr salt's personal character his loyalties to be recognized for the three chief thoroughfares of the town are victoria road albert road and albert terrace his affection for his family comes out for caroline street bears the christian name of his wife and the other streets are named after his children grandchildren and other members of his family again his esteem for his architects is expressed in the names lockwood street and mawson street in all there are twenty-two streets besides places terraces and roads which contain eight hundred fifty houses and forty-five almshouses making a total of eight hundred ninety-five dwellings covering an area of twenty-five acres let us enter one of the dwellings and examine its internal arrangements from the sample the whole bulk may be judged it is built of the same stone as the mill and lined with brickwork it contains parlor kitchen pantry and three bedrooms some of the houses are designed for larger families and others for boarding houses these dwellings are fitted up with all the modern appliances necessary to comfort and health they are well ventilated and have each a back garden walled in and flagged the rents are moderate and the houses are in much request part of victoria road is occupied by tradesmen's shops the post office the savings bank and the office of the shipley and saltaire times the whole cost of these dwellings in eighteen sixty seven amounted to one hundred six thousand five hundred sixty two pounds exclusive of the land with so much consideration for the welfare of the workpeople it was not likely that the educational wants of the children would be forgotten and laying out the town a central and most convenient site was set apart on which elementary schools were to be built from the first provisional accommodations had been made elsewhere but it was not till eighteen sixty eight that the site was occupied the report of the government inspector after their erection was that the school buildings for beauty size and equipment had no rivals in the district the cost of their erection was seven thousand pounds they are situated on the west side of victoria road and provide accommodation for seven hundred fifty children the style adopted is italian which is uniform with the other buildings of saltaire the boys and girls schoolrooms are placed at opposite ends of the building each being eighty feet long by twenty feet broad 
between the wings and the front is a double colonnade to the back are extensive open playgrounds laid with asphalt also covered playgrounds for wet weather in front the ground is tastefully laid out with walks and shrubs two sculptured lions are placed at the corners of the garden palisades emblematical of vigilance and determination these are works of art superior in the estimation of many to those at the base of the nelson monument in trafalgar square indeed they were originally designed for that monument by mr milnes the sculptor but a misunderstanding having risen between him and sir e landseer they were not exhibited in london but transferred to salt air mr salt from the first had the schools placed under government inspection for though many of his nonconformist friends were then unfavorable to state interference in education he strongly advocated it not for the sake of the grants but for the benefit resulting from the inspector's visits when the education act of eighteen seventy came into force board schools were erected for the district and in the neighborhood of saltaire mr salt therefore resolved to give up his elementary schools and turn the buildings into middle-class schools for which purpose they are admirably adapted these with the institute which we shall afterwards mention bid fair to make saltaire renowned not only for its manufactures but also for its educational advantages End of chapter ten